0: Welcome to Samford University's campus worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation.
1: Okay, so I'm going to be reading um, a passage of scripture from Luke 10, verses 25-37. through um, And it's about loving your neighbor. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, so he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine, then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, Take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, The one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise.
0: Well, thank you, Philip, and thank you, choir. Uh, that was amazing, and to especially have your voices warmed up at this early hour in the morning is impressive. Thank you all for being here and Dr. Sarah Helms McCarty was scheduled to be here this morning and had to uh, wasn 't able to make it and so i 'm picking up her parable that she chose and continuing in our series on the parables of Jesus and the parable that you just heard read from Luke chapter ten is traditionally called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I just want to say one or two words about where this parable is located in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 10, this parable appears right after a story in which Jesus gathers together 72 of his followers and then sends them out to be messengers, to be missionaries, to be spokespeople for the kingdom of God. And then on the heels of that story, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think that tells us something about Jesus and tells us something that Luke wants to emphasize, and that is we find in this story two things combined that we often do not do a good job combining ourselves, particularly in this context. Luke combines the importance of being a messenger with the importance of being a neighbor. Messaging Giving the proclamation of the good news is something that conservative, evangelical folks have been doing and have been pretty good at for a long time. Message, uh, neighboring, providing for the needs of the poor, advocating for social justice. This is something that those on the left have been good at for a long time. But rarely do we see these two things brought together in meaningful and powerful ways. Most people who are good at messaging aren't necessarily great at neighboring, and a lot of people who are great at neighboring aren't necessarily good at messaging. Those on the right focus on individual morality and the importance of making an individual decision. Those on the left focus on corporate morality and the importance of, cor- of, of communities and social structures advocating for those in need. But rarely do we see these two things brought together the way we do in the life and ministry and message of Jesus. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan follows the story of Jesus sending out the 72. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. Now, I just want to walk through a few of the characters in the parable and draw a couple of conclusions. So let's start with this person who confronts Jesus with the question, he's called an expert in the law. He's not an attorney in the way we think of it. He was an expert in the Jewish law. And he asks Jesus this question in order to test him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a test for Jesus because there are two answers Jesus could give, either of which would get him in trouble with someone. He can say, follow the law. And then he would be good with the uh, Sadducees, but he would anger the Pharisees because for the Pharisees, the law and the prophets were important. He could have said the law and something more which would have pleased the Pharisees but angered the Sadducees. And this was an attempt to get Jesus at odds with one religious group or another. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. He responds to the question with a question. He says, what's in the law? How do you read it? And Jesus gives, uh, or, and the, the, the expert in the law gives a common summary. You know, there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and so the Jewish people had a common way of summarizing all of the law. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first phrase connects the inner life and devotion to God. The second phrase connects our devotion and our obligations to one another to be Uh, loving neighbors, and the expert in the law brings these two things together, the inner life and the outer life together, and gives this answer to Jesus. And Jesus says, you have spoken well, go do this and you will live. And we're told here in Luke that in order to justify himself, the expert in the law says asks another question, who is my neighbor? Now why did he need to justify himself in this way? Because you see, being a neighbor is actually not a hard thing depending on your understanding of neighbor. Depending on how narrowly you define neighbor, being a neighbor is not that hard. You can be a neighbor rather easily to the people you know well, to the people you like, to the people who are like you, to the people who like you. But being a neighbor to people who are different, people who you don't like, people who may despise you or people who you despise, that is a more difficult issue and that's the one Jesus addresses with this story. So he begins by saying there was a man who was walking along the path from Jerusalem to Jericho and this man was was beaten and robbed. We know absolutely nothing about this man. I think this is intentional. We, but when we encounter the man, he has been beaten. He has been robbed. He has been stripped. He's not speaking, so we don't know his language or his ethnicity. He's been robbed of his clothes, so we don't know anything about his socioeconomic status. He's laying on the ground, so we don't know how tall he is. We don't know anything about his physical stature. And he has nothing. He is completely laid low. And in a clever literary way, this allows us, every one of us, to identify with this person. This person is us. This person is the kind of every man or the every woman. We are all, in some sense, before God, spiritually bankrupt. And this man has been completely stripped of everything that he has. And then a series of people walk by the first person who walks by, of course, is a priest. And the priest's responsibility was to lead worship in the temple. The second person to walk by was a Levite. And the Levite's responsibility, ironically enough, was to manage the temple treasury, part of which would have gone to help the poor. And both of them walk by this man who's been beaten and robbed. They cross to the other side of the road. They avoid him. They neglect The responsibility that we all think they should have fulfilled to help someone who was hurt and in need. Now there are a lot of theories about why these two people walked by on the other side of the road. So I'm going to present to you three of them and then suggest a fourth. Some people have argued that the priest and the Levite may have looked at this man and said this man was foolish. You know... I'm sure you've heard that the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was extremely dangerous. In fact, it was called the bloody way. Because so many people ran into so much violence along that road that it had a reputation. For this man to have been traveling alone down that road was foolish. Maybe they thought he got what he deserved. He's in the condition that he chose for himself. He is suffering the ramifications of his own decisions This is what he should experience. And that may be one reason that sometimes we look at people around us and we think, bad choices, you're getting what you deserve, we're going to let you experience what you have chosen to experience for yourself. Maybe that's why the priest and the Levite chose to ignore this man. A second possibility is that maybe they were concerned for their own safety, You know, for the same reason that you probably don't pull over and pick up hitchhikers, that if you see a stranded motorist, maybe you take your cell phone out and call somebody, but you probably don't pull over in a secluded part of the interstate and offer to help a total stranger. Maybe it's a setup, maybe you could get robbed. And if this man is still lying and he's still bleeding, he was just robbed. Then the people who robbed him could still be nearby. As a matter of fact, maybe this whole thing was a setup. Maybe they positioned someone there to look like he was robbed, hoping that people would stop so that then they could rob the people who help. And so, in some respect, what the priest and the Levite did was good common sense stay out of trouble, stay out of dark places, keep your eyes out, avoid danger. And those kinds of the kind of advice that your, your your parents probably give you when you take a road trip somewhere. One third possibility is that the priest and the Levite chose to do what they did because had they stopped and helped, had they exposed themselves to blood, they would have broken some Jewish purification principles and codes and would have been ceremonially unclean and could not have helped lead in worship, when they got to the temple in Jerusalem, they could not have fulfilled their duties. So for the sake of religious duty, they avoided the man who was injured. And these are all probably legitimate reasons. These are all valid arguments that people have made. And you can kind of see yourself a little bit, maybe, in any of them. We've all maybe neglected a neighbor at one time or another for any of these reasons. But let me suggest a fourth reason. And this reason came to me when I read a little book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point. And in this book, Gladwell tells of an experiment that was done at Princeton Theological Seminary. They collected a group of seminarians, right? So these are people who are training to be ministers. And they asked each one of them to prepare a short extemporaneous talk on some biblical theme. And then they wanted them to walk from where they had initially met them to the other side of campus to deliver this extemporaneous talk to a group of undergraduates. And in the path between building A and building B, they had positioned a man that each of these seminarians would have to pass on their way. And this man was laying on the ground, slumped over with his eyes closed, moaning and groaning as though he were in pain. And the experiment was to determine which of the seminarians would stop and help this man. Now, they set up the experiment so that they could test three different conditions, and the first condition was a vocational condition. They had all the seminarians give a survey, complete a survey, giving the reasons for why they had enrolled in seminary in the first place. Was it to learn theology? Was it to uh, connect more deeply with Christ? Was it to help other people? They thought maybe one's vocational aspirations would help predict whether they would stop and help somebody. That was the first condition, the vocational condition. The second condition was a topical condition. So they gave different seminarians a topic to speak on. Some had to go and speak on the professional environment of the clergy, but a group of seminarians, they were actually given the parable of the Good Samaritan, to speak on to a group of undergraduates and told to walk across campus to speak. They wanted to see which group was most likely to stop and help this man on the sidewalk. And then a third group, this was a time condition, a time variable. One group of the seminarians was told, take your time, make your way across campus, you've got plenty of time, And when you get there, maybe you'll be a little early, you can stop and say you know, hello to a few people and then deliver your, your talk. But to another group, they were told, now you need to hurry, you're late. This started five minutes ago, you need to get there quickly. And so out the door they went, rushing to deliver there. So the psychologists who ran this experiment wanted to de- determine who was most likely to stop and help. Those who vocationally were inclined to help people. Those who considered, uh, who were preparing to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan, would they be most likely to stop? Or would those who felt like they had the most time be most likely to stop? And so I want to ask you, and you can vote by show of hands, which of these three conditions was most predictive of which seminarians would stop? As it turns out, the only factor that was at all predictive was time. In fact, No other factor had any difference whatsoever in whether people stopped. As a matter of fact, the psychologists reported that there were actually seminarians who were on their way across campus to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan who literally stepped over the body of a man laying on the sidewalk moaning and groaning in pain so that they could go speak to undergraduates about the parable of the Good Samaritan. As it turns out, those who felt like they were in a hurry... Of those who felt like they were in a hurry, only 10% stopped to help. But of those who felt like they had more time, 63% of them stopped to help. Now, I'm going to suggest something about this parable that is particularly applicable to you and me. And that is, maybe the priest and the Levite didn't ignore the robbed man because they were because the man was foolish or because they were, had religious duties or because they were concerned for their own safety. Maybe the reason they didn't stop is just because they were in a hurry. And maybe the reason that we sometimes are not good neighbors to one another in our own context and not good neighbors to others outside the Sanford bubble is just because we don't have time. Because we go typically in our lives from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, and we are programmed from sunup to sundown. And when we climb into bed at night at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, completely exhausted, we're hoping to squeeze in six, maybe seven hours of sleep before we repeat the whole process the next day and we roll into the weekend on Saturday, completely exhausted. But Saturday is a fun day, and so Sunday is homework, catch-up day. We stay up late doing, and we repeat the whole cycle, and it's just busy, 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 busy. Mm-hmm. And in this Christian context, on this Christian campus, maybe what we tend to do is literally to step over or around or through crowds of our neighbors when they are in need. Maybe not physically. Stripped and robbed and beaten, but emotionally or spiritually stripped and robbed and beaten, ignoring the people around us just because we're busy, just because we're in a hurry, just because we have heads buried in our phones or in our books. And so I think this parable calls us, in some ways, to rethink about how we think about our neighbors. The parable ends with a shocker, and often parables do this. The method that Jesus uses with many of these parables is to save the most important stuff till the end. And so in this particular parable, Jesus sets up a story with a a surprise, shocking ending. Uh, We don't catch it because it's not really part of our world in our context, but you have a priest and then you have a Levite and then if you're in Jesus' original audience, there's two groups of religious people, remember I said at the beginning, who are listening to this story. You have Pharisees and you have Sadducees. And if you're the Pharisees, you're expecting that third group, all right? the priests, the Levites, ah, the Pharisee. The Pharisee is going to come along. He's going to be the one who helps. If you're a Sadducee, you're thinking, ah, priest, Levite, a Sadducee, of course. But Jesus doesn't pick either of those religious groups. He picks someone that both groups hated, that both groups despised. He picked a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were ethnically mixed. They were Jewish and Arab. And that made them hated by Jews and to some degree by Arabs as well. But not only that, they had screwy theology. They rejected worship in the temple. They were ideologically messed up, or so the Jewish people thought. They were ethnically and racially messed up, or so the Jewish people thought. And so they were hated. And yet Jesus chooses this person to be the hero of the story? In our context, it would be sort of like me telling you a story of someone being injured and, first of all, a doctor passes by but doesn't help. And then a school teacher passes by and doesn't help. We like doctors. We like school teachers. And then the third person I might mention that could maybe be irritating to you in a way similar to the way this story would have irritated Jesus' audience is to say a third person passed by and this person was a terrorist. And this person stopped and helped. And then I ask you, which one was a neighbor? Not the doctor, not the school teacher, but the terrorist. The religious extremist was the one who was a neighbor. And that's the impact this story might have had on the people to whom Jesus was speaking. And let me tell you that what the Samaritan did was risky. He could have been hurt. It was expensive because he takes this injured person to an inn and provides him with everything he needs and even says to the owner of the inn, hey, spend whatever you have to spend and when I come back, I'll cover the cost. kind of like giving this guy a bl- your credit card or a blank check and saying, spend whatever you need to spend. It's risky financially. It's risky from a safety standpoint. It was extravagant expensive risky neighboring and that's what Christians are called to do that's what we in this community should be doing but usually we're just too busy too busy to even maybe make it through a class without texting too busy to make it from here to the next place you're going without checking some things on your phone Too busy to see the people to your left and to your right who might need a word of encouragement or just some honesty that, guess what, I don't have it all figured out in my life, isn't nearly as neat and clean and perfect as it looks. So let me suggest maybe three things that we can do in response to this parable. Uh, Number one, I'm going to say, is to take the dangerous road, which means go out of your way, take the risk to speak to someone, to help someone, to impact someone who might be a neighbor or might be in need of just some common friendship that you could provide. The second thing I'll say is reconnect belief and action. If you're one of those folks on the right who has always heard that you should proclaim the gospel, great. Now add to that some neighboring. And if you're one of those people on the left who has been exposed to a lot of social justice and a lot of activism, now I'm going to say, speak the gospel and reconnect those two worlds. But the final thing I'm going to say is this, slow down. Slow down. Take the dangerous road, reconnect Belief in action and slow down so that you can see what's going on around you, so that you can see God's work in you, so that you can see the need in your neighbor. Let's pray. God, I am grateful for the men and women who have led us so spectacularly this morning with their musical gifts, and for the men and women in this room, and for the gifts and the amazing intelligence and talent represented here in this community. We're grateful. This is a great place to be. Now I pray that we would never take it for granted that we would be neighbors, that we would not assume everybody here has it figured out and has a perfect life and has it all together, but that we would see needs, that we would express needs, that we would be vulnerable, that we would take the dangerous path of being neighbors to one another here and to those outside of this campus. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. For more information about Sanford University, check out sanford.edu.